So Anton Katz is the CEO founder of Talos, a full life cycle trading platform that connects institutional investors, crime brokers, exchanges, OTC desks, lenders, and custodians in today's crypto asset market structure, streamlining the entire trading process, eliminating unnecessary intermediary risk, and providing institutions a clear path to best execution. Prior to co-founding Talos, Anton served as head of trading technology for AQR Capital Management, one of the world's most prominent quantitative investment firms. Anton also spent six years at Broadway Technology, serving as director of software, where he led trading technology development projects for dozens of leading banks, asset managers, and vendors. He began his technology career at Microsoft. Anton is a veteran of the Israel Defense Forces, and prior to that was a member of the Israeli National Shooting Team, which is badass. He holds a degree in computer science from MIT. All right, let me breathe again. That was a lot. Welcome, man. There's there's a lot to unpack, and as always, and very little time. So what I love to do is, Anton, where where did you grow up, and and what is the family heritage? So I was born in uh, Ukraine, and I was actually born in the city of Donetsk, which is where a lot of the fighting is going on right now, unfortunately. So we're on the Ukrainian side, immigrated to Israel when I was 10, along with my extended family. Uh, it was mostly their idea. I was 10 at the time. I was <laughs> we went. I was in Israel until slightly after, a couple of years after my military service there. And then I, you know, got accepted into MIT against all odds and moved to the United States and started my career there. The idea, I think, was like ready to, to go and like come back to come back to Israel, but, you know, like life, it is. Life <laughs> takes you in different, different uh, directions every time. Yes, I, I agree. Yeah. Did, did, did you have any entrepreneurs in the, in the family? No, not really. I mean, I wouldn't say that because the, the vast majority of my family, you know, like my, my sister and my mother, my father, grandparents, the, the vast majority of the grandparents, some of the aunts, some of the uncles, everybody is a, is a doctor. So really, really? I'm the only, okay. you know, like I'm definitely the only technologist. And as far as I know, I'm probably the only entrepreneur at this time. But I think things no are changing. The, the newer generation is a lot more computer science oriented. They're going into their own. their own. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm the last one. I, I do think I'm, I'm one of the first ones. I'm curious, was that like a, an obstacle or were they very supportive? Or was it like, why would you go down that path? Like, <laughs> you can be a doctor. It's a it's <laughs> deep, deep <laughs> question, man. So look, I mean, generally speaking, I, I couldn't be I couldn't be luckier with my family. My family is actually very, very supportive. They they yeah. they never, you know, like or at least in the beginning of the path, I think that they didn't necessarily understand why I'm making certain choices, but they, they were always supportive of those choices. That much is true. But without a doubt, I mean, you know, like I remember my my grandpa when, when I told him that I'm going to MIT, I'm like, listen, I mean, I think I'm going to be an engineer. And and he was basically like, oh my God, I don't know how you were ever going to make money. And this is not necessarily the right profession. <laughs> and he's like, you know, like, because Soviet, Soviet upbringing, he was like, you should be a doctor or a lawyer. And the funny thing is, you know, about him is that at some point yeah. he was like, he told me that actually in the, you know, he fought through, through World War II. This is my, my older grandpa. And he was telling me that originally he wanted to be an engineer, but then 
He was actually studying for engineering in Stalin back in the day. Basically said like, oh, we don't have enough doctors and literally converted their entire school to, to wow. medicine school. So like his entire trajectory towards medicine was actually altered by somebody else. And he was originally thinking about engineering, but the vast majority of the family is, 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 is doctors. And that's, yeah, that's so wild. Blood cheap a little bit, you know, that's wild. All good old Stalin or bad old Stalin, whichever. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably the latter. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, and I have something else here because I saw and I mentioned it that you are an Israeli national shooting team. I can't just bypass that. I know we're going to jump into the business journey, but like what? So how did you go from and, and it, were you part in the Olympics as well? Is that right? And like, how did you go from shooter to them oh, deciding man. like, I want to do programming and engineering in like MIT or like how, how that happened? So, so those are, you know, like those two are very, very parallel path. I, I started actually programming when I was 10. My <laughs> grandfather from my mother's side, when we were leaving Ukraine and going to Israel, they didn't come with us initially. So he gave me these two books about QBasic, about actually about basic, not QBasic, just basic, because I mean, you know, like this is 90s. And so, and, and actually 90, like, so like really the beginning. So he gave me the book and I, I read the books and started, you know, like get really interested about programming, didn't know anything about computers beforehand. So that was always there, you know, like starting to, to code at that kind of like age kind of puts technology in the back of your head. And then the shooting career started when I was 15 and I went to a local shooting range and kind of like, you know, I, I really liked it. It's, it's, it was a part of a school activity. And then at the age of, I think 17, I made it to the Israeli national team. At 18, I competed internationally. I think for the first time at, at that scale, I competed in Barcelona, which is the world championship for shooting conducted every four years. And I won the world championship then. And that was yeah. for, for junior. So until the age of 21. And so the idea was, you know, at that point, you're kind of like, okay, this is really cool. Like I can do this. And the target was to potentially, after my military was over, to go to the Olympics. So that kind of like coincided with 2004 Olympics. And the way it's done is that they tell you like, hey, you know, like you can train for it and we will sponsor it. You know, like it's not it's not a crazy amount of money, but it's something you can live off. But they're like, you can't go to school, really. You have to train towards the Olympics and then all bets are off. You can do whatever you want. And, and my deal with the Olympic Committee of Israel was that, you know, like I'll apply to one school only. If I get into that one school, I go. If not, then I go to the Olympics. And then I, I applied to MIT because I was, you know, again, the technology side, it was basically my dream school forever. I applied wow. to MIT, got in and, you know, like the rest is history, I guess. That's amazing. That's, that's, I, I love hearing those type of experiences. And uh, you see so many correlations with founders that, you know, have, have ended up doing really fascinating things. And somehow you follow in their youth and they're somehow they're like, oh yeah, I was in the Olympics. You're like, what? How is that possible? That's it's wild. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Very cool. So let's it's a talk cool about sort of experiences, man. It's it's a it feels very very like a different life right now. But it's a but it's a really really cool thing to go through. And I think it's there's just a lot of things when you when you do anything deeply, like whether you're a founder, whether you're a you know you're an athlete, where anything, right? The minute you're doing something fairly deep and you go down that rabbit hole, like it just I think it just teaches you quite a lot about yourself and how to work through different scenarios. And so I'm, I'm very actually thankful for that portion of my life. I, I think that there's probably a bunch of it that's that's being used today, whether I want it or not. You know, I love that the discipline, the mindset that that you get from those experiences are are priceless. So that's really really cool. 
All right, so let's talk about Talos. So I want to I want to cover what it does, and I feel like the best way to be able to do that would be if you can give us a sense for how trading is currently like executed. What does it look like, and the problem yeah. that Talos is solving? And yeah, maybe we can so give an example, like while you're highlighting what what trading how how it currently works, <laughs> like what trading for those that are not in this space. What it currently is, what Talos is, the problems that Talos is focusing on, and if we can use like an example, maybe of anything to help illustrate it. Sounds good. I'll do my best. And and the only demoralizing part of it is that I know ChatGPT will do a better job. But so, <laughs> listen, the, the, you know, for us, what we do is very similar to what we did before, right? Which is provide institutions with the ability to trade in this this time cryptocurrencies. Like throughout my entire career, as you mentioned, I've been involved primarily with capital markets and we provided similar services to firms in capital markets. But really, what does that mean, right? Trading is kind of like simple, right? Like you and I can go on Fidelity or 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 anywhere to buy a stock ETF, right? And all you do is you, you figure out, they tell you what the price is, you figure out how much you want to buy, you buy and that's it. Behind the scenes, there's a bunch of machinery that's happening, but that's kind of like what we see as retail investors. If you want to do that in crypto, it's kind of like similar to that. You go on something like Coinbase, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. And then you, you know, you look at the price of Bitcoin, you 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 put some money at Coinbase and you buy, and now you have Bitcoin, they have your dollars, right? Institutions don't trade that way. Institutions trade enormous sizes because they trade on behalf of other retail customers or on behalf of other institutions. So for instance, if an institution decided they want to take a position of a million dollars or a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, right? They won't be able to use the same tools. Usually they would need to use institutional tools, and that's the kind of stuff that we do. And that means that they would need to make sure that you know the prices that they see are actually, you know, reliable and, and real prices and fair prices, because you know, you owe that to your underlying customers. If you want to trade in enormous size, you have to issue best execution. And basically, what that means is that instead of looking at one place, like interacting with Coinbase, for instance. You need to look across multiple exchanges, multiple counterparties. You need to figure out who has the best price for what. And algorithmic execution is the thing that comes into play there. That kind of like, you know, dissects the, the orders, sometimes an order into 10,000 parts or a million parts and manages that across the entire market, connects to all the world, the, the global market and trades, you know, like $10,000 there, $1,000 there, a million dollars there. And then puts it all back together for the for the actual investor. There's also other pieces of it, which is things like clearing and settlement or facilitating the, you know, like if you and I agree today on a trade, I say like, hey, Alejandro, I'm going to give you a dollar and you're giving me the equivalent in euro. We agreed on that. And that's actually a trade. We, we, we did a trade, right? But we actually need to settle that trade. And settling that trade means that, you know, I give the dollars and you will give me the euro. Somebody has to facilitate that as well. So ultimately, you know, our job is to, Look at this entire investment life cycle, all the way from, hey, I decide that I want to trade, to I trade and I execute my trade, to I clear and I settle my trade. So all that entire investment life cycle, that's what Talos provides today. We provide a one-stop shop for institutions to manage their entire domain. So a bank can come to us or an asset manager or, or a larger investor can come to us and say, hey, you know, I want to hold my assets with these custodians. I want to trade with these five exchanges, with the six OTC dealers, market makers, those are participants of the market. Mm -hmm. I want to clear my trade through these providers. We, as a technology provider, 
align all those pieces for them and then facilitate this entire operation. So that's, that's our that. job. Our job that's is really super, to, yeah. you know, like, the kind of tools that institutions have in capital markets to do this, which have been done for many years now, we are bringing exactly those kind of tools to crypto so they can interact with crypto the same way they interact with, with capital markets. And that's kind of like, you know, we're doing this because we are seeing a huge wave of institutional capital, institutional players migrating and, and entering the crypto market. And that's our job. Our job is to, to help them do that. That's yeah. fascinating. I love that when you're trying to do something at scale, right? It's, it's a whole nother ballgame, what you mentioned, right? Now, now you have major institutions that want to do these massive trades and across all these different minerals. And how do you, how do you manage all that? How do you make sure that it's, now yeah. I understand when, when, when it said best execution, when I saw that description, I was like, okay, how, how is that? What do you mean by that? Yeah. Now I get it. That's like a weird technical term, right? But like it's, it, all that means is that you need to, instead of interacting with market, you need to look across the board, wherever prices are available, and make sure that no matter what happens, you get the best prices possible for your underlying customers. That's best execution. And actually, best execution is not a nice to have. It's a regulatory requirement of anybody that's providing. So, for instance, if you're trading through Fidelity, Fidelity is, you know, to the regulator, they basically said they will deliver the best price possible to you. And they are tested on that by the regulars. So there's quite a lot of machinery to, you know, behind just that word, best X, there's just tons and tons of machinery, tons of regulation, tons of policy that, that goes in. So, and that's true for every aspect of institutional trading. So I, I understand the streamlining, the entire trading process makes complete sense and helping with best execution. And these are all like the three major it, it, it sounds like it, like the three major problems. The other is that eliminating intermediary risk. How is the, is, is, is the risk of, of a trade going wrong? Is that what you mean? Like, is that tied to the best execution or are there other ways in which that risk is? Quite a lot of different ways. So there's a, you know, there's risk that is a counterparty risk. So it's a risk of one institution versus another. So again, like imagine you and I agreed on a trade, right? And now, you know, we shook hands on it. But at the end of it, let's say the, the dollar went up or the dollar went down. And for one of us, the trade doesn't make any sense anymore. But we agreed on it, right? Mm -hmm. The counterparty risk means that the other one, the other person doesn't fulfill the obligation for some reason. Maybe because they went bankrupt. Maybe because they decided to walk away from the trade. That doesn't happen very often. That, that walk away from a trade doesn't happen very often in capital markets. But it does happen. And so there's quite a lot of machinery that you built to be safe, to be able to resolve these kind of conflict, to be able to... And make sure that the client is not exposed to the counterparty risk. But there's actually quite a lot of risks. And so, for instance, you have risk around where you're keeping your, uh, your capital, right? And mm -hmm. Bitcoin and, and other crypto assets, it's very important because those assets can move. Within like 15 minutes, they can actually be moved and they can be in another place in the world and you will never find them, right? That's how the technology works behind it. And so when clients are interacting with cryptocurrencies, they need to interact with custodians that are, that are good, that are, you know, like, they provide them with the right set of tools to make things safe and potentially even interact with multiple providers. So what we do is we allow them, we allow our clients to come in and say, hey, I don't have to trust just one custodian. I can trust even multiple custodians if that's what I need to do. And we will still streamline that entire operation for them. We will work as kind of like an, an umbrella that connects all those services. So we are trying to every single time by redundancy, by, by technology, eliminate a lot of the different risks that are associated with the trade lifecycle. Okay, so you're 
customers, you mentioned institutional, these are institutions, institutional investors, it's prime yeah. brokers, exchanges, OTC desk, lenders, and custodians. So we have, we have generally, you know, like that's just, that, that's a bunch of different client types. In short, okay. we have two different big buckets of customers. We have buy side institutions. Those are institutions effectively that are trading using their own capital or the capital of their customers. So, you know, like the people you mentioned, people like asset managers, proprietary trading desks, small, you know, small hedge funds or big hedge funds, and some of the largest hedge funds in the world. Anybody who's trading in the market using their own capital or capital of customers, that's about half of our customers. Half of the customers are sell side customers. Those are people that are providing trading capabilities to their customers. So for mm. instance, a broker, a retail broker, institutional broker, or an asset manager again, or, or a custodian that's basically allowing their customers to come in and say, buy Bitcoin, sell Bitcoin, Ethereum, or anything else you want. We power behind the scenes a lot of these players as well. And now we do this globally. So our clients are kind of like, you know, they either use our stuff to trade or they use our technology to provide trading capabilities to their customers. So this is, this is really exciting. You're in a space that is, you mentioned, it's very, it's highly regulated. How, when you got started, right? When you said, let's do this, this, there needs to be a better way for institutions to be able to do the same thing that they're doing, but within the crypto space for trading and all that, right? Like trading crypto. Yeah. How did you land your first customers, right? Like, can you walk me through that journey? Because that looks like a massive barrier. You can't really go from like, here's our MVP and, you know, like, you know, a third of it is, is so big true. and then like try it right to like a massive institution. And I'm guessing you are targeting the sell side first, like between the buy and sell side, who are the ones that you wanted them to, you know, grab, grab this technology. So, so you're absolutely right. The, you know, we spent a year heads down building and mind you, this is again, like, this is, I don't, I don't know what time it is. Like we've built this in every other asset class. We were the largest providers in, in fixed income. We've done this in FX. We've done this in, in treasuries, in, in, in equities. We've done, we've built exactly those kinds of systems before, but at the same time, it takes time to build those systems. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, when we started the company, it's myself and Ethan Feldman, who is, you know, like the best engineer that I know. And Ethan and I worked together at Broadway Technology, who was the chief architect. When we started building the system, it's, it's the two of us were actually building the system. And it took quite some time. We, we started recruiting engineers, but we didn't go to market until it was about a year later. And during that time, you know, you, you have the good thing for us is that we come from the institutional sector. So we know a lot of the customers. We know who are the typical people that will be using this. And actually, the way you start, you know, institutions, they're kind of like on this, on this curve of, of risk in a way, right? Like there's some that are like, very risk friendly and they'll do things very, very quickly and they'll experiment and they'll, they'll try something and they might be very small or maybe they're medium sized. On the other side, there's the pension funds and enormous banks and like right. you know, enormous asset managers. They can't really experiment at the same speed. They don't move, but when they do move, it's like, a, it's like an aircraft carrier. You know, they have all the money and all the equipment and everything and they arrive there and it's, it's game over, right? So. When we started, we actually started targeting buy side and we created this, this first uh, version of the technology that allowed small hedge funds that were trading crypto to come in. And instead of like writing all this connectivity themselves to the individual exchanges, to the custodians, 
we said like, come use us. We have this, we have basic algorithmic execution, which today is the most advanced in the market. But back in the day, you know, like we were just starting and it was just a handful of us. And we basically said like, just use it and see if the connectivity aspect makes sense. And we gave it for free. We just wanted to make sure, you know, like and that they don't use it with the crazy, crazy numbers and don't trade like billions of dollars immediately. Like we really wanted to test the pipes. And the only way to do this, honestly, is just to get to production and and start start seeing like what's happening. And there were breaks and we we, we were fixing them, but you start that way. Like it, it took us a while to build the first version because you just include a crazy amount of safety in those. You know, it's it's a it's a it's the institutional market. It, it, the an error can take a company out of business for <laughs> right. right? And that has yeah. happened. Yeah. And it's all it's not only that, right? Like the minute to the minute you start talking about the sell side, even the larger buy side, you're no longer playing with like your own money. You're playing with people's pensions potentially. You're playing mm -hmm. with, with you know like it's, it's it's something that you have to part of the reason why majority of the engineers that come through Talos are are engineers coming from capital markets is because you need to know how to build and run those kind of systems. You need to know what it's like to carry the burden of of managing a system that is, you know, that has that kind of responsibility. And so we always kind of like, you know, worked very methodically in terms of like how we implement, how we release, how we document, how we test, how we like, what is the safety, how we monitor the system. And that's why it took a, it took a little bit before we were confident enough to say to the first client, here, take this and go at it. And then, like, I'll remember the first trade forever because, like, you know, we've released this kind of stuff many times before, but it's just like every time you see a first trade going through a system, you're like this. You're like, right. <laughs> Is it going to work? And I think the first one went okay, but, like, I don't know, like, the 10th one broke something. And we were immediately, like, you know, heads down, like, okay, what happened here? Like, is this a problem? Is this not a problem? So it's a painful path in trading technology usually. So you mentioned you, you, you came from the industry. You understood the problem. You understood who had the problem and you decided for first customer to reach out to the smaller ones, the ones that I'm guessing had shorter sales cycles. I'm still curious, what was like a sale? What was an average sales cycle for you when, when you're targeting these smaller buy side? Um, oh, nothing. Oh, nothing. that quick, like, huh? like, like weeks probably, you know, wow. and, and today it's obviously measured in, you know, there's some things we, we we still have from the, those days, right? Like we used to be able to deploy, like when we built these kind of things in capital markets, to deploy environment was like a couple of weeks because it's it's complex and all of that kind of stuff. Also, the tools were different. Today, with AWS and GCP and you know like just tons of tools that's available, the Terraform, mm -hmm. you can deploy actually very quickly. You can create like this customized environment pretty quickly. So from the first days, we said that that's going to be one of the KPIs that we track. How quickly can we deploy an environment for a customer? And, and even today, it's still under like, you know, five hours. I love like we that. We can and roll out the full institutional environment in basically no time. And that's one of the advantages that we have. And so in the first customers, did you, did you mention about customization? Does every customer have the ability? Like, do they need to have some form of customization in the way things are executed? Or, or is there a... Here's, you know, here's A, B, and C. Which one do you want to use? And that's what the technology does. It's it's actually a blend of two. So what you do is you end up build, building quite a lot of those customization hooks for the customer in the platform. So when we release a platform, usually it's always exactly the same. 
and but the customer can turn on certain pieces turn off certain pieces and reconfigure certain pieces and usually we will work with the customer to do so so you know especially nowadays where we have customers that are you know like it's it's a very different customer between a quantitative hedge fund that has their algo connected to to our machinery and that helps them trade through the entire market and that's literally just apis you know going very very quickly you know millions of orders a day versus a institutional broker that's providing a, a UI of ours to their customers, like very, very different flow. But the but the heart of the system is exactly the same, and it's just configuration hooks that you build. So when we deploy, we can literally say like, hey, you know, configure the system in this way for this type of customer. It will deploy and configure things automatically, and then it's just about connecting the final pieces together, and that usually takes very, very little time. Got it. And when you decided to go after those first customers, what was your thought process and who to go specifically after? I mean, one was, we talked about it, like, so at the risk that, that they have and how quickly they can make decisions, but yeah. was there anything else that you took in mind in terms of variables of, of why it made sense to go specifically start with this particular one? Well, we knew kind of like, you know, when, when we thought about the market and the way we looked at the market in capital markets, we kind of thought that this market is going to evolve in similar ways. There's also, by the way, mistakes that we made initially. We thought that majority of our first clients are going to be API quantitative asset managers or quantitative hedge funds, right? So the people that basically have an algo that's generating a direction, how to trade in the market, they would feed that to us. Our system will actually trade it. That was the bet. That was totally wrong. Our first customer was actually that. It was exactly that. But then we discovered that like there's tons of other customers that are trading in the market and they're trading voice which basically meant instead of API, they're looking at screens, they have intuition, or they're using some, some other data to figure out like direction of the market, and they're buying and selling manually. And we didn't even have a UI yet, right? So to go to wow. those kind of customers. And so for us, that was kind of like the first pivot. And that happened like within months of launching to production, we were like, oh, you know, like we really need to speed up the development of the first UI UX. Raising capital worked very, very well for that. And so when we released the first UI, that's kind of like the first inflection point that we've seen. All of a sudden, we had a bunch of clients that said like, oh, we were interacting with one provider at a time, and it was like very slow. But through your system, I can just like ping everybody at the same time, like immediately trade with everybody at the same time. And that was the, the kind of like the first time we've gotten all of a sudden quite a lot of customers. I, I, one of my favorite things with other founders is talking about those initial pivots. One, very rarely do I speak with someone that they're like, we had no pivot and we've had zero like change from the original vision and all that. wrong. There's no such thing. <laughs> it's, it's, but so Mike what Tyson you has this like weird thing, right? Like Mike Tyson said, what did he say? He said something like, oh, yeah, yeah. no plan survives like a, oh, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. That's right. That's it. I love that. And then, I love that. Yeah. But that's exactly right, dude. I mean, there's better ways to say that, but but that's exactly right. It's yeah. your reality will hit you. You learn so much that you haven't learned in the past. Like, you know, like whatever planning you did, you'll learn a lot more. And the minute you have something and you have something that's touching real life, that's kind of like where, where the, the, what, the, what the direction led you, changes start. What led you and how long did you wait for to make that judgment of, well, maybe we were originally going after thinking like it's, you, you said API? Or ABI, I, I don't know which one you said. API, API. Okay. Originally, right, API. API, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so like it you're originally going to go there and then and then how long did it take for you to say, 
you know what? Actually, like it's this direction that makes sense for us because that's a big problem for founders when it's even harder when you have a customer become a customer and then you are still trying to figure out, is this the right customer or am I missing out on like a much bigger customer and a much bigger opportunity? It's within the first couple of months when we started interacting with the first customer, we started seeing the trend in the market because the minute you have those kind of first customers, you start actually having your hands in the market. You see what people are doing. Like, are you competing with somebody? How are people thinking about this space? And you just get better and better connected. And despite the fact that, you know, like, and we were working with, just because there wasn't a lot of institutions, like traditional institutions that come in. So we have a lot of connections and a lot of ties to traditional institutions. We sold technology to all of them. But there's a new breed here, which is the, the crypto natives. And today it's a mix, but in the early days, it was a lot of crypto natives that came in and said like, no, we're just going to build a crypto only business. They never had companies before. They were as, as young as we were potentially, mm. or maybe like, you know, had a year on us, maybe two years on us of trading. And mm -hmm. so you really needed to be in the market and to establish a network to be able to even reach that understanding of like what the market actually looks like. So, but the pivot is always quick for us because like we always said, we have to be nimble. And when we build, you know, like part of the reason, so we added the UI, right? Mm -hmm. But our UI used the same API that our clients used. It was always the same. We mm -hmm. never built anything specific. It was always an addition. And as a result, it also drove the API layer. So the clients that were using API, that continued advancing because we are now building and we are our own client effectively. Mm. So, you know, you, you, you have to, you have to kind of like, from a business model perspective, from a design perspective, from the product perspective, you have to, at least in the early days, be very, very flexible. And given our industry, crypto specifically, that evolves very, very quickly, Flexibility has to be part of your business plan. You have to, no matter how big you are, you have to know that you can, you can on a dime change directions if you need to, you know? So that's, that's part of the, part of the, part of the thing, part of the signal. You us. mentioned, you mentioned the, the fundraising that you, you fundraise. I know you, you fundraise over 150 million, something like that for, for Thanos so far. Yeah. Congrats. Amazing. It's it, that's yes. what gives you the, the, the fuel to continue growing and doing all the things that you need to do. How did you, when, when you founded Talos, you know, that, uh, that in revenue, but yeah, yeah, that in revenue, of course, this that definitely gets, helps. <laughs> yes. Very important. What, so when you co when you, when you found it together, did you raise from the, from the get-go from the scratch, like from the, from the very beginning? Or did you have traction and, you know, did you get your product out there for a, you took a year to build, got traction and then fundraise? What was, what did that look like? Yeah. So, I mean, kind of like actually, we, I mean, with your previous companies, right? You bootstrapped a lot of it. We were thinking about exactly the same thing and our, our, our path was actually to bootstrap and then use the, the traction to, to raise additional, to, to raise initial capital. Mm. In reality, that's just not what happened. We... In our effort to establish a little bit of networking in the community, a really good friend of the firm connected us to Notation Capital. That was the first VC that we ever met. And we connected to Notation and just to get some advice on where the industry is, like how are people are thinking about this, how are institutions coming into this, just to get their feeling for it. And Notation, to their credit, you know, like, and we're like, tell us about the idea, really like the idea, called us a couple of days later, and they're like, listen, we just want to be the first check. Which wow. is weird because like we had, no idea how to take money. 
Like, you know, we have <laughs> the capital markets, no clue whatsoever. And and so, but yeah, that's that's actually where we, uh, you know, like we organized the round, Notation led the round, Castle Island joined, Autonomous joined, Founder Collective joined, and a couple of others joined the round. But yeah, so we ended up taking money from the very beginning. And I'm very, very, very happy that we did because it yeah. allows us to... You know, allowed us to scale very quickly. We made first hires very quickly. We also, when we decided that we want EUI, we spent the money on a design agency and we built something, you know, that, that is still with us today, not something that we threw away immediately after. Yeah. We didn't save any money with respect to legal, which has saved us on a number of times. Just like, you know, one advice <laughs> is don't skip on, on legal. Don't it's skip a, on legal. Accounting me. was buttoned up from day one, like it's, it does the kind of stuff that you can do when you have capital from day one, you don't make those early, really painful mistakes down the line. You know, I was just going to ask you that. Are there, are there any lessons learned? You mentioned a couple, but are there any lessons learned from, from, did you continue fundraising in addition? So like, was that your seed? And then you, obviously you continue fundraising afterwards and like, what, what, yeah. Uh, any lessons from the whole fundraising journey? Well, I don't know. Are are you what, what series are you in? Like series B or C or I don't. So we so we raised we raised the pre seed and the notation led. Then we raised the seed about a year later, already having some customers. Initialized led that. Then we raised A and recent Horowitz led that one. Awesome. And then we raised B about actually almost exactly a year ago and General Atlantic led that round. So oh. it's, you know, like all in all, it's like basically four fundraisers that we did with uh, pre-seed was a convertible note and then seed was a price round and then everything afterwards was price round as well. We never raised in the middle. Any, any lessons throughout that journey where you say, you know, big difference when you're going for that B or for that series A or anything that you say, like, first off, so you mentioned, don't, don't skip out finding the right lawyers. It's true. Makes it's, a lot it's of funny, sense. But it's true. Dude. It's, it's, uh, you know, the lawyer, like basically in our business, we had a couple of things that we said, first of all, we had no idea how to fundraise. We've never done this before. So we reached out to a bunch of people and, and actually, you know, somebody sent us a book, like somebody like literally just took pity on us and said like, here's the book. <laughs> read <laughs> this. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that was a good primer. But then when we got Fenwick on board, Fenwick just basically sat down with us and they're like, listen, we help a lot of people. We will educate. And we, our team at Fenwick is an amazing team. So they literally walked us through the entire process and they were with us on, on calls and things like that. And in early days, I can tell you, like I would have made a lot more mistakes if they weren't there. But the lessons are, you know, one is we took way too long because again, like we didn't know any better. We took way too long trying to understand, should we take money? Should we not take money? If you have the money coming to you, just take the money, go and actually build the company. Don't focus on the, on the stupid little, and, and Ethan and I did this, like, obviously we made that mistake. Like we were like hyper-optimizing, oh, like, will the dilution be this, dilution be this? Like, are we giving up this? None of this stuff matters at all. Like at all, at all, you know, like you, you, you look at it at the four rounds after five rounds after you're talking about like half a percent, a percent difference out of zero, it's still zero. So it doesn't really matter, right? Like just <laughs> get your head out of fundraising and get your head into building and as early as possible. And then things that helped us with fundraising is that we were after our pre-seed, we were very comfortable prototyping very quickly. So we would either ourselves or work with an agency to say like, hey, you know, this is what's going to be released in the next year. And we would build like 
tentative UI user experience for that to really quickly showcase like what we mean. And we would show that to the customers and we would show that to the investors. And that helped investors to understand how we're thinking about the problem, helped customers to come in and say like, oh yeah, we definitely need this. So constantly mm. served uh, this kind of like, you know, like double, double thing, but any Do you still do that? Is, is that time. something all the time? Yeah. So prototyping, and, and is that, I mean, that's kind of like product discovery, right? Like where you, you, you engage in a conversation with a customer and you're sharing with them, here are some features where we're thinking of building or whatever the case might be and seeing what they say. That's exactly it. And, and some people say like, oh, you know, like don't go and talk to customers before that. We're very clear with the customers. We don't have the backend behind this yet. We want to show you what we mean. And some people say like, oh, you know, like competition will get a hold. Dude, don't ever worry about competition ever. You, if you trust yourself to build something, like other people will try to build it, but trust yourself to, to be able to deliver something. It doesn't matter. Like I, I never concerned that people will see what our platform looks like. We're proud of it. Like you can take a look. It's really tough to build. I know that I trust that our team is the best in the world for building this kind of platform. So any kind of like talk about like competition, waste of time. Any talk of valuation, usually a waste of time. Like all of these kind of things within reason, you know, like there's obviously extremes, but within reason, just don't waste your time. Build the best product, get it to market, solidify your relationship with clients and, and go forward constantly. What channels, I love that, by the way, it points it on the customer at the end of the day. What, what channels of acquisition were the most successful for you in getting in front of these potential customers? Like what, what and this is B2B, you leverage your, your, relationships but were there anything that was really really helpful a lot of it is you know it it started so for the first two years i think we were founder-led sales so it was literally myself and ethan going into every conversation talking to the clients trying to make sure at some point it just didn't scale anymore and that's when we made our first hire Uh, we 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 asked alphonse mandizi come in and today he is the head of our business development and sales globally and you know like it's a i wouldn't say so we're religious about keeping track of the data right now. There's a couple of stuff that we do, campaigns that we run, paid campaigns that we run, some events that we do that are really, really good. But ultimately, it's just boots on the ground. It's establishing your network, establishing relationship, and let's be going and, and talking to people, understanding. A lot of times, you know, like we were lucky because our clients have started becoming the, the biggest sales factor for us. And overall, the liquidity providers ultimately started sending people our way too. So... When we got to scale, we were just having so much inbound that, you know, like we didn't need really a lot of outbound, but mm. it's still, you know, like it's, it's a, but before getting there, two years, founder led, you know, sales, you guys were, whether it's jumping on calls, emails, uh, conferences, I mean, guessing conferences were big too, or not really, or that's to not really, extent, you know, not a, you know, a little, yes, but it was never a, a huge, huge return on conferences. But today it is because today a lot of institutions are in those conferences. In the early days, it just wasn't the case. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, like a lot of it was just we would we would work with yet another liquidity because, you know, like we integrate, right? But yeah. also, we're not competing with any exchange like Coinbase is an investor, for instance. Mm-hmm. We don't compete with Coinbase. They're a great exchange. We we send volumes there. Like we don't, we're not an exchange. We don't have a matching facility. So our clients come in and basically it's, we have a really, really nice relationship with the liquidity providers, whether it's OTC desk, whether it's exchanges. 
So an exchange that hears of a client that is basically a systematic client, they need multiple exchanges, they need overriding, they go like, oh, go talk to Talos. Talos is already connected to us. You can meet us there and, and that's it. And so that became some of the, you know, creating that network, creating those kind of relationships became some of the reason why sales picked up uh, pretty dramatically. Any, any partnerships, like affiliate program, anything like that, that was another type of channel that was big for you guys? That, that became a thing later. So just in the past, I would say, year, year and a half, we've been striking quite a few partnerships. You know, Trading Technology is one of them, which is a great provider in capital markets, but there's quite a few others. Some of them are literally like a very, very tight partnership. You know, you come to us, you come to them, it's the same thing. Some of it is referrals, some of it is, is cross-selling. There's a bunch of stuff, and we're actually developing that vertical quite quite a lot. Awesome. And it, sound, and it sounds like you first have to kind of build up your name, your the experience, the product, everything to get to the phase where you are now, which is like for partnerships. Um, I mean, especially in our world, right? In we your space. Don't tailor it to, to, to retail customers. Retail customers can come in, try and leave, or, or they can come in and stay because they really like, because it's sticky. Institutions, they kind of need the, you know, they need to trust you. They need to see that, that you have a track record. They need to also have a reference. A lot of times our clients say like, hey, who else are you working with? We're like, okay, I mean, now we're working with the, the largest institutions in the world, so you can call up anybody and they'll tell you, right? But developing that kind of trust, again, like because the stakes are very high in our sector is very important. Going a bit more into like the, and this, the, this is the last section that we concentrate on in terms of talent and recruiting. You mentioned that two years you were, you know, you and Ethan were, were the ones selling, and then it got to a point that you said, all right, we're going to need to hire somebody else. When I'm curious, what is what what is that tipping point for you guys, right? Like, what what did that look like? Was it like, okay, I literally can't fit any more calls in my calendar, and and it's that and like, it's literally that. yeah, that's literally yeah. that. It okay. does, you know, it's it's a certain maturity I think that you come to that you're like, oh, you know, like we need to be able to trust other people to advocate for the system to to showcase the platform to be the face of the company, right? Before that, you're like. But I've built this. I know I have right. seen the aspect of it. Like, you know, like, and so Ethan and I used to do a lot of the stuff, but then it just doesn't scale. And ultimately you go, but, but that's also a mistake, you know, because you do that because you're like, oh, I'm just so stressed. Like, well, I probably need help. But actually what, what Alphonse brought in is that Alphonse was able to establish our entire team and also the processes. And now nothing like falls in between the cracks, right? Like you as a founder, you're not going to be best positioned to try and follow up with like 50 clients, right? Like you, you just can't. And you're also trying to play the account management role. You are trying to play the, the client's the client sport. Like it's just not, it doesn't scale. But then once you start hiring great people around you, those people can actually establish those practices. They can focus on them real time. It's basically, I think for me, the bottom line is like, whenever you feel like something is no longer a part-time job, but is a full-time job, you have to hire into it. And that's that's exactly like sales at some point you go like okay just even filling the incoming is not a part-time job it's something you can can focus their entire day on it that's when we made the switch and it's it's a you know not a moment too early when when have you noticed and this is the culture aspect of it right like uh, the type of culture you want to foster within the company and as more talent yeah. comes in how do you make sure that that continues? You know, what, are, are there any are there any particular obstacles that you've seen? And I know there are, but there that because everything is a, everything is tough and challenging. But when 
as, as you go from, you know, zero to 10 employees and then 10 to 20, I don't know where you guys are now, but uh, along the way, did you notice a huge difference between a particular number and what took place versus like now we're at yeah. this and there are these other challenges? Yeah. Oh man. I mean, that's kind of like, that's, I, I think that's only probably the most important conversation that, that, that happens in a firm today. We are, we're, I think we're about 140. Wow. So, you know, like it's, it's a reasonable amount of people. It's very easy to maintain culture when you're like 10, 20, right? Because you know, everybody, you know, everybody really, really well, you catch up with everybody. You, you feel like you can pick up the phone if they're in another country, or you can just see them in the office. And that that's pretty easy for us. The, you know, generally what, what's my job? right? This is CEO, right? Like my job is, at least the way I feel about it is you build the best team possible. Like the literary team is your number one priority. Your, your second priority is don't run out of money. <laughs> I <laughs> I like, you know, yeah. If I do those two correctly, you know, like everything else kind of follows, like obviously you're focused on product and strategy and your you and, and organization and all that kind of stuff. But really those two are really, really important. And Ethan and I, from the beginning, said, like, look, I mean, we worked for other people before. And we worked, we really, well, we worked for uh, yeah. trying to change. <laughs> so we worked for other people before. And one of the things that we said we want to do is we want to build a company where we would want to work. So building that kind of culture. And, and again, easier done, easier said than done, right? In the beginning, it's actually fairly easy to see because you are... You know, you're constantly looking for it when you're recruiting. You're constantly like thinking about that. Like, is that the person the right fit? Not just like, can they do the job and will they do the job? It's like, are they the right fit in the company? And now as as we scale and continue growing the team, it's it's all lens on talent acquisition team. On on how do you search for that kind of stuff? Like, you know, I, our stats are, are, are crazy. Like, you know, during the month of, November of last year, that's the latest one that I remember. Mm. We we interviewed in general, looked through resumes and interviewed about four hundred and two people and we hired three. Wow. Right. So you're you're constantly in that space. We have a pretty wide recruiting team as well. It's in-house and we spend a lot of time, a lot of dedicated time into into putting the right team together. So you do everything you can. And then on top of that, you know. We're a distributed team at some at this point. We have offices in a bunch of different countries. We have we cover APAC, EMEA, and United States. Uh, how do you how do you bring the team together given that everybody's spread out, right? How do you what kind of events do you do? How do you like you know what kind of budgets do you have for flying people around and making sure that the team remains a close knit team? How do you do that? How do you build that kind of organization? Those are the challenges. I think that we're very successful today. You know our attrition is virtually zero. There's very, very few people that ever left the company, which is great, but it's, you're constantly have to pay attention to that and you have to generate a place. And again, like the, the guiding principle is try to build a place that you would want to work at, not just you are like, oh, it's great to be the founder, but like you would actually go and you would work there and you would feel good about it and you mm. know, be motivated going forward. I love that. Any, any shout out anything you'd like to share on where you are now for any of the founders out here anything else that you want to be able to share with them you know i i would say <laughs> there's there's two things maybe and it's, it's it all goes back to go into personal relationship one is that you know i am very lucky for the network of support that i have like family is 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 everything and i have a i have a wonderful family that, that's that's with me but 
that's kind of like one thing, but having the right founder is just critical. I am so lucky to have Ethan Feldman that decided to, to, to do this thing with me, because I can tell you, like, we wouldn't have a company without that, I think. Uh, yeah. and, and that kind of, you know, it's, it's so finding the right partner that, that you really fit with. And we don't necessarily agree on everything, but like finding the right partner, I think is, is that you trust good. and you respect one another. And if you mm-hmm. actually end up enjoying, I agree with you, my, my co-founder, DTO, Eric Lamb, we, we hang out all the time. We, we go out. So it's like, aside from the trust and respect that we have of, of, of our capabilities, like his strengths and how they complement my strengths, yeah. aside from that, just being like someone that you can rely on and it's like an actual true friend, I agree with you. Ethan is, a, Ethan is family to me for many, many years, you know? So that's kind of like, that's the one thing I would say, like, that's a, not something to, to take lightly. Like who is, this a long journey. It's a long, long journey. A very long journey, potentially, <laughs> for some yeah. people, you know? Yeah. Then, the second thing I would say is, especially for, you know, like, I should have, I should have used that advice more, but like, especially in the first couple of years, trust other founders and reach out to other founders. Because like, there is no point in you doing this yourself. We have all traveled this path and made a thousand errors, a thousand errors, like every year, a thousand things you can point to that like went wrong and we all learned from it, or at least like I hope that that we did. Trust other founders, reach out to other founders, use that network. Other founders will always support you. Like we all know what that pain is and it's it's you should trust the, the fellow founders. Like when you're vetting investors, talk to other founders. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Like we have, you know, back in our series, series A, we had a we had a couple of investors who were competing for the you know like for the for the leading spot, and some of the investors like basically tell you they they go like oh yeah go talk to this founders go talk to the founder. You should know as an investor that founders don't really lie to each other. So <laughs> we had like literally a founder goes like I would pick up the phone and they would go like, dude don't work with them they're such yeah. a pain. Yeah, <laughs> like hundred percent. I think you so saved trust, me so this, much. This notion is like yeah. it's it's unbelievable. Founders to founders bond is very, very strong. And my, you know, like if, if I had like one thing to, to kind of like say is like, pick your co-founder very, very carefully and trust their founders and then focus on your team. Everything else comes in. Like there's no ideas that are original. Nobody cares about any of the stuff. You can come up with ideas until the cows go home, but your ability to execute just depends on the kind of like team that you put in place and, and that's it. And execute is how you win this thing. Anton, thank you so much, man. I, I, again, I appreciate the time.